everyone, welcome back to Soul Organised Style Podcast. I'm Maria Theharis or Velosos. Let's get started with Socialist Tuesday. Soul Organised Style Podcast acknowledges traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, waters and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to the Elders past, present and emerging. A big sponsor shout out goes to our two podcast friends and sponsors. The Australian Sewing Guild, who has been our Monday Daily Series regular, is now a sponsor of Sew Organised Style Podcast. Go to ozsew.org to check out the online workshops, sew-alongs, skills library and more. Our second sponsor is Tatiana's School of Couture as she launches it online. Go to her website to see her new online sewing classes and patterns. Welcome back everyone to Socialist Tuesday on the daily series of Sew Organised Style podcast. Today we've got a really special guest. The reason I say that is because if you've been looking at the blog post on Socialist, you'll remember that there was an article about Claire. She wrote it because she was an apprentice and is a bespoke tailor. So let's give a warm welcome to Claire because we've got her in the Zoom studio today. Hi, Claire. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for fitting us in. That's great. It's great to speak to you. When I read your story, I was so impressed because a you gave us, the readers, an idea of what it took to get yourself into tailoring and it's bespoke tailoring. Yeah. It's the high end, what everyone would (laughs) admire. (laughs) That's great. I think I was very lucky. It was by fluke that I ended up into tailoring and I've always been very creative and I needed an outlet for it. And as soon as I started the tailoring course at Newham, I just, even though it was a real struggle because I hadn't used a sewing machine before, I didn't even know how to thread a sewing machine. I was that bad. And after a couple of months, I was just like, this is what I want to do. And it's probably not going to be easy, but I need to make this happen. So yeah, like anyone out there that is thinking of getting into tailoring that has no experience, don't let the fact that you can't thread a sewing machine stop you because that's exactly where I was. And well, now I'm a tailor, so just don't give up really. So how, sorry, this is probably personal, but how long ago was that when you couldn't, you couldn't thread a sewing machine? I was about 12, 12, 13 years ago. No, hold on. 18. Sorry, I'm trying to work out how old I am. 14 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) I do forget. So our listeners are going to have to realise that, you know, even if you can't thread a needle on a sewing machine, you can still do great tailoring techniques. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You just need to take that first step and just continue going. Don't be afraid of failing. I think that's always been my biggest problem as well. I think anyone that's creative has that problem. They're their own critic and that's what holds you back. So you just need to try and don't give up because you are going to fail. And I have failed miserably at many things. So mm-hmm. <laughs> never worry about failing, but you just end up, you, you will get there eventually. If it's your passion, you'll get there. And when I've been in sewing groups, it's always a curious thing that everyone 
knows that they've done a good job, but they'll always say, oh, but I did this wrong. And then they start focusing on that negative thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I can totally relate to that. Every jacket I make, there's always something that I say I could have done better. And I, I try to get out of that mentality. But I also think that's helped me get to where I am because mm-hmm. I've always pushed myself to be better. And by constantly striving for that, my level of work has has improved massively because of it. I'm, I've never been one of those people that go, hmm, it's okay, but, you know, it, it doesn't matter. I'm always like, it's good, but this I would have done better next time. And then I'll, I'll take that and I learn from it. So, I mean, it's, it's difficult because you are your own biggest critic at the end of the day and it is unhealthy in some, in some aspects. So, mm. yeah, yes, it does have its upsides, but also it has its negatives as well so you just need to try and balance those two things out really (laughs) yeah and in a way you're doing your own sort of uh continuous improvement so in the workplaces that I've been in they call it continuous improvement where people can put in okay in this process that part didn't work so let's work on fixing that so I suppose in a way you could do that with your own saying oh I didn't get my bound buttonhole quite exact so maybe I'll practice and I'll do some more of that. Yeah, exactly. Like the thing is, you never stop learning either. I know people that have been in the trade for many, many years and they, they're still learning every day as well. And thankfully working at Sexton's, I have so many people like that that I can now go to for advice. And like between them and I, we kind of bounce ideas off of each other. And we're like, what, like, what do you think of that? Or they'll say to me, I've just started doing something this way and maybe you should try it and I'm like okay so they literally happened just the other day we're talking about sleeve heads and uh, one of my friends said to me oh I've just started mm-hmm. doing this method with sleeve heads you should try it and I was like oh okay okay great I'll try that out and I did and so I sent him a photo and I was like look it turned out great thank you so much <laughs> see and that's a conversation you can have with your peers and they get excited <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, like people not in the industry, they'd probably just be like, okay, that's really boring. (laughs) Oh, they'd smile and they go, that's lovely, dear. Yeah, yeah, if I started talking to my other half about it, he'd just be, his eyes would just glaze over. So it's great to have such a huge community of tailors that I can talk to, because unless you're interested in tailoring, you just don't want to know about it, do you? (laughs) Walking down Savile Row last year, when I was visiting the UK, it was just a really lovely feel in that street yeah. and seeing the emblems on the outside of the stores mm-hmm. to see who, who they actually sew for in the royal family. Oh, yeah. That was so impressive. Yeah. Every tailor house has a like specific person they work for or mm-hmm. have worked with in the past. So they all have such a huge history behind all of them. And it's not until you start really looking into it, you realize what they've achieved over the years. It's, it's quite overwhelming really have you worked in any of them specifically or I work from home now and I work for them at home okay so whereas when I worked with Edward I was based in Knightsbridge so I was off Savile Row right but now I'm back working with Savile Row tailors and I also work with a few tailors off of Savile Row as well that I've been recommended to so I'm regularly running up and down there with many jackets in my hands trying to not get them too creased up so <laughs> now I have a longer journey when I was an apprentice I was just going from Knightsbridge to Savile Row whereas now I'm, I live in uh, out in Kent so yeah it's, it's quite a long journey to be going on a train and carrying four jackets so it's good it's good for the muscles 
So in your toolkit as a, as a bespoke tailor, what sort of tools do you have in your kit? The thing is I have, a, I have a workshop at home, so okay, I have everything I could possibly need in there plus extras. But if I was to go somewhere to sew, I would always take my thimble. Right. I have a little pair of gold snips that I've had since I started tailoring. Um, I take those with me because they're always useful. Mm-hmm. Take chalk, tape measure, pins. The thing is, it depends on where I was going and what I was doing. But oh, obviously needles, they're yep. essential. Some basting cotton, probably some hand silks as well, just in case. But there's so many tools. <laughs> I, I would need more of a, a truck to take everything with I me. So. <laughs> because even when you say pins, I take pins mm-hmm. with me. It depends on what you're working on. Exactly. And the type of pin you would take or selection of pins because you've got linings and interlinings and, you know, the fashion fabric. Yeah. And also, to be honest, if the cloths and fabrics that I was working on were finer, I'd probably not use a pin and I'd probably base them instead just because the cotton's a bit finer and it doesn't leave any marks after. I mean, it's all relative to what you're working on, how how I work with it, so... Unless it's a specific situation, it's hard to know what I would take, but I normally have a thimble on me anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And do you collect thimbles or do you have your one favourite thimble? I do collect thimbles. I have, I probably have about 10 at the moment. When I first started out, they didn't really make thimbles for my size because it was mainly men that Mm. they made thimbles for. So they were ridiculously big and they would, because it's on the middle finger, it just wouldn't stay on there. So um, someone actually gave me a thimble that they had that was small. So that was my first ever thimble. Since then, I've I've been like, looking online. I'm like, oh, I'll try that one out and see if it's any better. But I have them my size that I'm happy with now. So I've got quite a few of those because you never know. I mean, since I've been working from home, I don't lose them as regularly. But working... <laughs> Working at Sexton's, I used to lose them quite regularly because there's just so many places they can drop and disappear to. Yeah. And then we'd be having a clean out maybe months later and I'll be like, oh, my thimble, I've been looking for this for ages. <laughs> I also have one that it's adjustable as well and it's just got the thumbnail that's covered up. Right. It's, it's kind of like an adjustable ring actually, but I tried that for a while and I did quite like it, but the only downside was sometimes when I was sewing because it overlaps mm. like that, Sometimes the basting cotton would get stuck on my finger, so that was the only downside to it. But I quite like the idea of it being adjustable. But just I, I have just as many shears as I do thimbles as well. <laughs> so with the shears, do you treasure some more than others? Sorry, I'm yes. getting really technical because I just I just no, love fine. all this. <laughs> so I have a pair. They're a Japanese pair, and I absolutely love them. I always go back to them as well. It doesn't matter how many pairs of shears I buy. I always, always go back to them. But I do have shears that I've been bought as a gift. So someone bought me a golden pair of shears and they had my name engraved on them. So so it was my husband that bought those for me and it drives him nuts because I won't use them. But I have them as like, it's like a a trophy in my workshop. (laughs) You treasure them exactly and he's like but you don't use them I'm like yeah but I didn't want them to be used I wanted to keep them in my workshop like I have my shears that I like but I wanted those ones as well and he doesn't seem to understand that but I guess unless you work in the trade or you sew you don't really understand what it's like to collect things and treasure them do you I mean to him that's probably a weird thing to treasure but you do end up treasuring them 
Oh, yeah, because uh, they were given to you. There was a lot of thought behind it, and it was, you know, a token of his love to you. Exactly. Yeah, I, ha- I have a few pairs like that. My pinkin, I think, is it pinkin? I never know. Because, pinkin shears. Yeah, I always, it's not really a tailoring thing, the pinkin shears, but more and more people started using them because they're just so practical, and I use them on everything now. Yeah, I was always a bit unsure as to what they were called because obviously it's more of a fashion thing, isn't it, to use pinkin shears. Yeah, I have a pair of those that I absolutely treasure as well. And I have many pairs of little snips. <laughs> <laughs> but I try to rotate around using some of them, but most of them are just trophies on my wall now. <laughs> it all depends on the angle and how fine they are and what it is you're trying to cut. Exactly, to. So exactly. I understand that. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the, my, my treasured ones that I use all the time, I use those for pockets. I can use them for everything. They're so versatile. So... That's why they're my favourite ones, because they just... Sometimes when I pick shears up, they don't feel right in my hand. Whereas these ones, from the moment I picked them up and started using them, they just felt perfect. Yeah. And, yeah, so I was using a pair of shears the other day that I bought cheaply online. (laughs) And um, (laughs) even though they're great, I managed to cut through my finger with them. (laughs) I was just like, well, that serves me right for trying to cut corners and get cheap shears. I always cringe when I hear about finger injuries because then you've got to tape it up and then they, anyway, it gets, yeah, I, it's I a sore point. <laughs> I just thought if I carry on working, it's going to keep splitting and I don't want to end up putting blood on what I'm working on. So no. it's very easy to harm yourself tailoring as well because of all the equipment. It's not exactly safe most of the time, but there's not much you can do about it. So you just kind of you learn to be respectful of the stuff and the damage it can cause you. So you just, you're just more careful. But yeah, I've, I've seen an apprentice, apprentice sew through her finger and oh. that wasn't nice. No. I just didn't know how to react around that. I was just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> the thread was still hanging out. It was disgusting. Oh, okay. it's, it's, in times like that, you realise how powerful the mm. machines are. <laughs> mm. yeah. Oh no, the poor thing. I take it that's never happened to you. Uh, touch wood, not up until this point, uh, because I've, <laughs> I've seen it happen. So I'm just really scared. Like I'll get my fingers almost to the point of where the needle is on the mm-hmm. sewing machine, and I know not to. And I've also got a speed on my machine. Mm-hmm. So when I first started sewing, I used to put it up full ball. Yeah. And then as I started to do more accurate sewing, I brought it back. So yeah. I had more control. Yeah, I, f- I feel like that's the, like, you do go through that, don't you? You're like, oh, I'm experienced sewer. I can go really fast. And then you're just like, actually, I don't need it to go that fast. I want detail. I don't want just speed all the time. So, yeah, I, I can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> and it was only this year I started doing – I'm, I'm not a hand sewer, right? However, I've done a couple of classes with Susan Calgy, and this year I did the classic French jacket. Cool which means now I understand the whole why you wear a thimble and <laughs> how you get more accuracy when you do hand sew large pieces together. Yeah, yeah. it does make a yeah. huge difference. It's so much more accurate. Do you appreciate it now as well? <laughs> and it's just as strong as if you were to have machine sewn something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, obviously, it's time-consuming, but sometimes it's worth it. You just have to accept it and you can't, always rush things can you if you want it no. to be good then sometimes you have to go down the route that takes longer but it's worth it so what would the lead time be for a jacket 
from when the client comes in to when the client picks up their jacket? Is there a, a, an average lead time or does it vary? Um, I would say it varies quite a lot. So mm. at Sexton's, you have the first consultation. So in that they pick out their fabrics and they're measured. Um, I'd say that could take anything up to two hours. It depends on how much the customer wants to talk in the first place. And then it goes into the cutting room. And so then it goes from the measurements onto card and then it's put onto the fabric and the fabric's trimmed out. That could be, I don't know, another two hours. And then it comes to the tailor and it depends how many fittings as well because you can have based, pocket-based, you can have forward and then you can have finished. So, I mean, it depends on how many fittings, but I'd say the whole process of jacket making itself is around... 30 to 35 hours and that doesn't include all the fittings mm. so that adds a lot of time onto it and then even at the end when it is finished it then goes to the finisher who does all the hand sewing they do the buttonholes sew down the lining sew on the collar that can take if i was to do that it would probably take me about eight hours because it's not something i do on the regular i think it probably takes them about four hours to do four to five hours Yep. And then after that, it goes to the presser. So mm-hmm. however long the presser takes, it's probably about anything from half an hour to an hour, if it was me. Yep. And then it still has to have the, the button sewn on, and then it's ready for yep. the customer to come in and try the final piece on. Even then, though, you still may have some fittings. So it could go back to the tailor to be altered again, mm. just so it's perfect. And then it would have to be pressed again before it's actually ready to go out the door. <laughs> So it is quite a long process. It is, but they're getting a quality piece that fits them perfectly. It's not off the rack. No, it's why it costs so much because there's so many people involved in the process and it does take a lot of hours to get to that final product. So it's it's worth every penny. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You do get what you pay for. (laughs) That's for sure. So locally, there are a couple of sewers that I know in Melbourne and they've started to hand sew buttonholes okay so that would be something that the finishers would do in the yeah that's correct yeah i know that um they've been sharing images on instagram about their so it's julia bobbin and poppy kettle or mel they've been doing the whole hand sewing oh okay so if you're ever on instagram have a look yeah and it's been really interesting to see how they've done a lot of practice to actually get the buttonhole to look like a perfect buttonhole by hand sewing Mm-hmm. So would mm-hmm. the finishers be the people who that's all that they would do? Yes. How does it work? If you're to take someone on, you kind of ask them what it is they want to specialise in. Right. So you can have trouser making, waistcoat making, coat making, finishing. I'm sure even the pressers that work for Savile Row, they have apprentices as well. And depending, oh, and also cutting. Mm-hmm. Depending on which area you choose is waistcoat making, trouser making, I'd say about one to two years coat making's averaging around four i would say and cutting is a long process (laughs) um and the finishing i think you could learn the finishing quicker but it depends on how quickly you progress and how much you put into it because obviously they sew so quickly but it's to a high level Mm. so to make it feasible as a job you need to get to that stage where you can sew fast enough, but to a really like high level. Yeah. So 
it depends entirely on the person just like with the other apprentice apprenticeships as well i always tried to let people progress as fast as they could but when they were up to a high enough level so it's it's really limited by the person or should i say restricted by the person mm. but you don't want to progress too fast because otherwise you won't have a chance for all the information to actually sink in and stay in your mind because at the end you need to be able to refer back to all the knowledge that you've got because you're going to be constantly using it so you you need to have the time as well as the experience it's repetition i think that was it for me it's repetition and when you when you do tailoring you always need to be thinking at least two steps ahead because you need to see what the finished products well the next few stages are going to be so you can have right. the right product at the end but yeah you just need to be able to see two three steps ahead because each step affects the next one so it's kind of it's kind of like a domino effect and if you go down the wrong path then it's not going to turn out right yep see so that's why you need to think ahead the whole time does that make sense yeah it makes sense got it it's really, yeah. it's really hard to explain it so even when i'm doing something i'm still thinking of the next steps how what i'm doing now is going to affect that i think that's the best way i can explain it <laughs> well and that's and that you can only do that because you've gone through the years of learning yeah and so then you've got the knowledge yeah. to then be able to make those decisions mm -hmm. at various points in the process exactly exactly yeah when, when i was an apprentice i was constantly thinking what is it i've been told to do next and then i'd have to visualize that and then try and work out what I was doing then that would affect later on. And yeah, sometimes when you're you're learning, you're just like, oh, it's it's too much. But with practice, it kind of, I'd say like now naturally I do it without even thinking about it. It's kind yeah. of like driving a car. You get in and it's something you've always done, so you just it's automatic. Whereas mm. now I can do that as well. But even still, like occasionally I think, oh, like maybe if I do it this way then it's going to affect that slightly differently and maybe that would actually be better. So, yeah, I, even though it's automatic for me now, I, I'm always looking for ways to improve it. And you've been doing this for so long as well. So no wonder, you know, a lot of this is automatic for you and you're just thinking the next few steps while you're working on whatever stage you're at now. Yeah. 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 I didn't ask you at the beginning, what's your specialisation? Is it jackets? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's coat making. So regular jackets, I can make morning coats, overcoats, anything like that, really. I really enjoy making morning coats. I think they're probably my favourite thing that I have to make. So they're just, I don't know, they're a bit different and the process is a bit different and they're for normally for a special occasion. So it's nice to work on things like that. That special occasion means a lot to the person that's buying it too. So exactly. that's quite lovely. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Is there any advice you would give someone if they're looking to become an apprentice? I always ask them what their circumstances are first. I would say if it is your passion, mm -hmm. then don't give up because it's not going to be easy. You're not going to just get offered an apprenticeship just like that. You need to prove that it's something you're committed to because at the moment there is more people wanting apprenticeships than there are spaces. When I first started out, it was the case as well but then there was like there was the from the sewing bee there was quite a massive influx of people that wanted to be tailors so then I think quite a lot of the spaces got filled up then mm -hmm. but if it is your passion maybe try to get some work experience on Savile Row because you can't beat actual 
one-on-one experience with somebody even if it's even if it's for free to start off with at least then you get to build up a relationship with them and then you get to make some contacts because if you have contacts that's one of the best things you can do yeah because then if there is an opportunity that becomes available they'll they'll think to contact you first so the more people you know the better really and you just need to show them that you're committed to it and just if, if they give you stuff to practice and you have spare time when you go home just practice it then because then when you go back in and you can say to them look this is what i've been doing they'll, they'll see how how much you how much of a passion it is for you and how much you are interested so you, you need to put the work in tailoring's not a career that you can go down and do it in a half measure it is consuming and when I was an apprentice, I'd go home and I'd be thinking about what I learned that day. And even if I didn't want to, it would still be there in my mind. And I'd just, I'd just be thinking of ways to improve it, or I'd be trying to memorize what I'd been taught so I could progress faster the next day. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's not something you can just do on a whim. It's something that you have to be passionate about. And if you're passionate, then you'll be fine. But yeah, I'd say just, if you can make contacts on Savile Row, as many as you can try and get some work experience and yeah like like, that's the best place to start learning one-to-one with a tailor there's there's no experience that will compare to that and then the skills that you learn while you're on work experience just adds to your portfolio really yeah exactly like most of the time that's the other thing to be aware of if you do get an apprenticeship you will be starting from the beginning again so everyone has their own unique way of teaching so if you have been learning with someone else then they'll probably want you to start again right from the start Mm -hmm. and then obviously they'll evaluate your skills and progress you depending on how well they believe you've been doing so yeah just be prepared for that as well (laughs) you're learning every day so if you're starting from scratch with a new tailor that's still fine because you're still building on your individual skill set so you see it in that positive light you're just gaining yeah all the time gaining skills all the time yeah yeah and it's quite a lot of the older mentality was if it's not my way it's the wrong way which I I encountered quite a lot but I was also very aware of that when I had apprentices but I always said to them like I'm going to teach you my way but if you then after doing it a few times you find a better way to do it by all means, come back to me and tell me you found a new way and we'll go through it together. And then hopefully we can both learn from each other. It's a learning organisation. Yeah, I, I didn't want it to be as in it's my way or the highway. <laughs> it's, it's actually shown that apprentice that you're willing to learn still. Exactly. Even though you're the one who's doing the teaching. Yeah. And like I said before, you never stop learning. So sometimes they have a more efficient way of doing it and it's literally just because they haven't remembered it how you've taught them but sometimes it works out better off but that's another reason why it takes so long is because as you learn you then go away and then you sometimes misinterpret what you've been taught and then you end up with the wrong outcome so then you have to go back to them and then they show you it again and then hopefully you get to where you were supposed to go but even in those situations sometimes it can work out well that's right That's really good. So how many apprentices have you trained so far in your career? So when I was at Sexton's, I had quite a few that came and went because I feel like a year of an apprenticeship is the make or break point. At that point, they either go, 
this is for me or they go do you know what I was wrong this isn't for me I, like I this I need to find something else yeah so I, I had quite a few that came and went but I had two that qualified whilst I was there that's great yeah. <laughs> yeah. only because they decided that yes this was for them they trained under you so it's fabulous yeah it is really rewarding as well teaching is really rewarding I did used to really enjoy it I did have a few apprentices at one point and that, that was quite overwhelming because one apprentice is quite time consuming and you need to watch them constantly as well because they veer off in the wrong direction sometimes. Yeah. So yeah, when you have a few to look after, sometimes it's a bit too much. <laughs> <laughs> the good thing is you've got oversight of what they're doing and you can actually steer them back into the right direction, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's so important because... I feel like there was a time where there weren't any apprentices being taken on and the older generations didn't want to pass it forward. And mm. I'm, I'm so grateful for what I've learned and I do want to pass it on and I want to give other people the opportunity to learn as well because the trade's only going to benefit from it. Obviously, it needs to be to a certain level. Yeah. Unless you pass it on, people aren't going to get to that level anyway. And we need to, as a community, we need to work together to try and raise the level to make sure everyone meets the criteria yeah and then the only way to do that though is working together not trying to only think of yourself and at the end of the day what you're earning people need to we need to work together the other part of that is once that person stops doing that role or stops tailoring that level of skill has gone so in a way you've got to keep fostering apprentices who can get to that level so that the art or the skill set continues exactly it needs to be constantly paid forward mm. it's not something that you can just keep to yourself like there are so many people that want to learn and they if they're passionate about it they deserve the opportunity to as well so the stages you talked about there were four stages in the process mm -hmm. um so there was the was it basting a pocket based and then two other stages yes yeah, so you can have based pocket based forward and then finish what's forward uh it's when the facings go on oh okay i've i've encountered people that don't actually put the linings in but my forward is with the linings in the jacket and the collar is basted on so the sleeves are sewn closed as in finished and then the collar's just basted on and the sleeves is basted in so they can all be altered easily is there anything else you want to know i would expect that the supplies that you get in Sable Row are different to where an everyday person would get their supplies from. So do you mean trimming-wise? Uh, trimming and also fabric. Oh, okay. So the tailoring houses all have books that are supplied to them with all the different fabrics in it, and they really vary in prices. Like you can have cheap fabrics, which I don't know, around £20 a metre. I mean, this isn't really my area, but from what no. I've experienced, 20 pounds a meter. And they go anything up to, I mean, you can have Vicuna, which is around 3,000 pounds a meter, which as an apprentice is absolutely terrifying to work on. <laughs> you're just like, every time you're mark stitching, you're just like, please don't make a hole. Please don't make a hole. <laughs> so that they have, they have all the books in the showrooms. And they're regularly, regularly people come in and they'll update the bunches, take out all the old stock, bring in any new stock. Um, so, yeah, it's, I mean, obviously it works well for the people selling the fabrics to have them in the tailoring houses. So it's, everyone kind of benefits from it, yeah. really. But most tailoring 
houses have many, many bunches in there, all different suppliers. Okay. All right. That answers that question. That was the only other question I had in my head that I thought, oh, yeah. No, that's good. Thank you, Claire. <laughs> that's okay. Claire, thank you so much for walking us through what it's like to work in Savile Row as a tailor with all of the aspects from being an apprentice through to training apprentices and now as a consultant. It's been a pleasure talking to you as well. So Organised Style Podcast is produced by me, Maria Theharis, with permission of Claire Emerson, sound by bensound.com. You can subscribe to So Organised Style Podcast, spelt with an S, not a Z, on Apple, iTunes, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, CastBox and Libsyn, our podcast distributor. Post any questions or podcast suggestions you have on our podcast Instagram account or on our Facebook page. We look forward to joining you in your sewing room next time. Stay safe, everyone.